Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Tony Reams, Assistant Professor at the University of Michigan School for Environment and Sustainability. Tony is a leading scholar on the closely related topics of energy justice and energy poverty. In today's episode, he'll help us understand what energy poverty is and how the federal government currently addresses it. He'll also share his thoughts on how better quantification of the problem can lead to better policy solutions. Stay with us. Okay, Tony Reams from the University of Michigan, my friend and colleague. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thank you for having me, Daniel. So, Tony, we're going to talk today about your work on the topic of energy poverty and help our audience understand that issue, understand its uh, policy significance and how it connects to climate change and a variety of other topics. But before we do that, we always ask our guests how they got interested in energy and environmental topics. So what's that story look like for you? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, and, and I think about this a lot, right? When you think about your upbringing and how that kind of impacts where you end up as an adult. And so I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, Lee County, South Carolina. Um, and I like to say it's the quintessential environmental justice community, um, predominantly African-American, um, higher poverty rate than the state. Um, and it hosts the state's largest landfill and the state's largest maximum security prison. Um, and so when I think about the idea of environmental justice, and now as I'm into energy justice, uh, I think about how political capital and um, kind of demographics of communities um, lead them to having and hosting things that other communities don't want. Um, and this idea of environmental justice has come up throughout my career, whether it was uh, my first job out of undergrad working for the Department of Health and Environmental Control in South Carolina, um, doing underground storage tank cleanup management. And mm-hmm. most of the leaking tanks were in um, poor black or brown communities in South Carolina, um, you know, kind of working in Kansas City, looking at environmental justice issues around green infrastructure um, and now doing energy justice work that, you know, looks at some of those same issues, particularly energy generation, energy access, um, energy affordability, but still impacting those same um, black and brown communities that um, that I grew up in um, and that I've always kind of worked worked in. Yeah, that's um, that's so interesting. And it's uh, and it reminded me that you're another Carolina boy. I'm from the north side of the, yeah. the Carolinas, of course, <laughs> but um, that's great. <laughs> Well, I went to school in North Carolina. That's right. Remind me. Yeah, uh, yeah. I went to North Carolina A&T. Yeah. Excellent. So I won't ask you to opine on which state has better barbecue because I know that's Because <laughs> we already most... know, right? <laughs> we, we all know the answer to that. It's North Carolina. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So um, so let's talk about uh, your work, even though we probably could argue about barbecue for the next 25 minutes. Um mm-hmm. A lot of your work revolves around the concept that you already mentioned of energy justice, uh, and also there's a lot of focus on the issue of energy poverty. These are, of course, related uh, notions. But can you just get us started by helping us understand what you think about when you think about that term, energy poverty, and how it fits into your work? Yeah, I think um, why I kind of hone in on this idea of energy poverty um, is because it's so multifaceted and, and related to other things. And and I think it's separate from general poverty, um, 
because you can actually address it with some physical improvements, right? So improving the physical condition um, of a home so you can reduce the energy consumption and hopefully make energy more affordable. Um, so this idea or concept of energy poverty really looks at um, you know, how much are people spending of their income on their energy costs? Um, some people say 6% um, is an affordable, anything below 6% is an affordable um, energy burden, which is, again, the proportion of your income on energy costs. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that, you know, many households um, in vulnerable communities are spending 10, 15, 20. Some um, in urban Detroit are spending 30% of their income on energy costs. And so you can relate that to the efficiency of the home, the participation in some of the clean energy programs or adopting clean energy technology. And so, Although we might not be able to change people's actual bottom line incomes, you can kind of improve the uh, materiality of the house that can reduce the money that they have to spend on energy. And so that's why I uh, spend a lot of time focusing on energy poverty. Yeah, great. And you've alluded to this a little bit already, and we've also covered it in previous podcast episodes. But uh, can you remind us uh, how energy poverty might differ across demographic groups in the U.S.? Yeah, um, even when you control for um, things like income, age of housing, you see kind of racial and some other uh, sociodemographic characteristics that that stand out or that are significant in people having higher energy burdens or less participation in energy efficiency programs or uh, less access to clean energy technology. Um, And so um, if you look at just general consumption, right, energy consumption um, at the household level, what you end up seeing is that on average, white households consume more energy um, and other demographic groups consume less energy. But when we think about this from an equity perspective, uh, we like to normalize and normalize by the size of the home. So square foot, um, Mm -hmm. which gives you energy use intensity. And so when you look at those numbers, you see a stark difference um, or kind of a swap in who's um, using more energy per square foot, which is a proxy for energy efficiency. So a higher energy use intensity means the home is on average less efficient. And you see black and Hispanic Latinx households, um, indigenous households are using a lot more energy to either heat or cool um, their homes per square foot than um, than white households. And so those are some of the kind of racial and demographic differences that we look at um, to try to understand if we're focused on energy efficiency, it might not be always going after the highest energy consumers. Um, we might need to go after the least efficient or energy efficient houses. Right. That makes sense. And when we think about the types of uh, you know policies um, that governments have been implementing to address this issue, whether it goes directly to efficiency or whether it's more explicitly targeted at at uh, alleviating energy poverty, can you give us a little bit of the lay of the land in which, um, in, in which ways the government uh, tries to alleviate or achieve some of those goals, whether it's at the federal or state or local level through different policies? Yeah, so one of the challenges I think in, in the U.S. is that we don't necessarily have a, a national strategy to attack this. And so what you see is some siloed processes and policies that address this issue. Now, I will say as a, a federal government, the U.S. has recognized energy poverty since the 1970s. Um, so we have you know, nearly five decades of experience 
in funding programs that address energy poverty. Um, two large programs at the federal level are the Weatherization Assistance Program, which provides uh, low to no cost energy efficiency for low income households, mm-hmm. and the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program, uh, also known as LIHEAP, which um, primarily funds um, energy bill assistance. And so a lot of that money just helps people catch up on past due bills. Um, And what you see is we spend about seven times uh, the amount of money on the bill assistance program than we do on the energy efficiency program, which is um, a more long term solution. Um, And so although we have, you know, again, five decades of uh, experience or funding in this realm, um, you do see kind of less um, reduction in the number of people that are in energy poverty. And then at the state level, you know, states are uh, public service commissions, public utility commissions um, do have policies in place or regulation in place that um, mandate utilities focus some of their energy efficiency efforts on low income households. And so the kind of income based approach has been the primary approach to this. Um, and so in my work, I argue for thinking about other things like um, age. And so do we have senior based programs, um, race because of residential segregation, um, knowing that people are still living segregated by race, you can have some race um, race targeted programs, and I think that should be okay, and we should you know be okay with that if we're actually focused on equity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, I mean, one one of the points that your work points out across the the many excellent papers that you've published is that. Despite the programs that you just described, uh, the problem of energy poverty is still a significant problem uh, in the U.S. Can you give us a little bit of a high-level understanding for why these programs are falling short? Um, is it simply a matter of not funding them sufficiently, uh, or, or are there other structural problems that are at play? Yeah, I think it can. It, it's all of that, right? Um, I think one one thing is that. I don't know if we've officially recognized energy poverty or um, other people use the term energy insecurity um, as like a, a distinct problem. Again, like I say, we, we have five decades of at least federal um, experience in, in trying to attack this issue. Um, but it is kind of like a status quo thing. It's like, you know, each year Congress appropriates, you know, X, you know, million or billion dollars to, you know, kind of these low income energy assistance programs. And like I say, primarily focusing on bill assistance, which is a band aid, Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that is, you know, one of the challenges um, if we don't have like a long term strategy to address this um, then we continue to do some of these kind of just repetitive um, processes or programs that, you know, help somebody in the short term, but not like a long term strategy. And so I think recognizing energy poverty, saying like this is a real problem in the U.S. Um, that we need to solve, that we need to reduce um, and then being strategic in how we fund programs that address it. Yeah. And I want to ask you about kind of your thoughts on how we can specifically do that, um, you know, how we might uh, be strategic in our thinking to, to address this problem. But before I ask about that, there's another question that comes to mind that you often hear 
uh, when you talk to people about energy poverty, particularly in the context of climate change uh, and ambitious climate change policies. So I've certainly heard the argument many times that uh, ambitious climate change policies, which deeply reduce emissions, have the potential to exacerbate energy poverty, uh, potentially here in the U.S. and also internationally. So when you think about these two kind of interrelated challenges, do you see them as intention or do you see them as, uh, you know, potentially benefiting from complementarities or how do you think about the interplay of those two topics? Yeah, I think that's a, a really uh, kind of interesting, like you say, interplay between um, two topics. And, and you've seen that argument, you know, carried out before. Um, at some point in my life, I, I read... Um, proceedings from public service commission meetings and reading utilities using the equity argument to uh, fight against energy efficiency programs, saying that if we do these energy efficiency programs, only rich people will be able to afford them. And so low income customers will bear the brunt of basically subsidizing higher income people to be able to make their homes more efficient. Um, and and that's, that's a really true argument, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, the equity the equity or inequity argument is actually there. Um, but to make that argument and not say thus or therefore we need to do something about that um, is where <laughs> I find the real tension um, in kind of making that argument. And so um, to think that there is no role for government regulation um, in our push toward uh, decarbonization or um, adoption of clean energy, I think, um, leads us to this point where we will worsen the energy poverty and energy injustice and environmental justice issues by not doing anything. Um, and so instead of them being intention, I think, like you say, there's some complementary elements to this idea of, of pushing forward, but ensuring that policies are in place that are focused on equity. And so are there carve outs to make sure that underserved communities um, are able to participate, um, whether it's, you know, making their homes more efficient putting solar on their rooftops or providing jobs in the clean energy industry. Yeah. And when you think about the complementarity, I wonder, I mean, one of the issues that comes to mind for me is when we think about hotter summers and higher mm -hmm. cooling bills that people are going to face, like clearly the, the complementarity there is if you, you know, reduce the peak of summer heat by addressing the challenge of climate change, then you reduce the need for additional cooling uh, and right. kind of addressing the energy poverty issue. Is that, am I kind of thinking along the right lines there? Yeah, because if we continue to have temperature extremes, right, that's going to require additional energy consumption, whether it's more natural gas to heat, more electricity to cool. Um, and who's that going to who's that going to impact when it comes to affordability will be those who are already suffering from energy poverty. And so if we can, you know, reduce temperature extremes, thus reducing our consumption while creating clean energy jobs and making sure we have an equity approach to making homes more efficient, uh, we kind of, you know, we address both of those problems at the same time. Mm -hmm. And along those same lines, there was a paper that you published recently in the journal Nature Energy um, with your colleague Dominic Bednar. So in that paper, you look at um, the way that uh, the government in the United Kingdom gathers information about energy poverty and how that information will help inform government policy addressing the dual challenges, right, of climate change and energy poverty. Can you talk a little bit about that particular approach that you describe in the UK and, and how it is helpful in this context? Yeah, I think the the 
the kind of the trajectory of the U.S. and the U.K. on this topic is so interesting. Um, and give a shout out to Dominic. This was the first paper out of his dissertation. Nice. Um, but yeah, so a lot of these low income energy assistance programs or schemes, as they call them in, in the U.K., um, started around the same time coming out of the oil crisis of the 1970s. Um, so both countries kind of recognized that low income households were being disproportionately impacted by the embargo, right? You know, rising costs, which had uh, took a larger share of low income households budgets. Mm-hmm. So they both created kind of federal programs to either, you know, help with assistance to pay bills um, as well as um, improve the efficiency of the homes and do you know energy education on, you know, consumer behavior. Um, but what you saw in the UK was not just creating programs, but actually saying we're going to have a national fuel poverty strategy, which is what they called it. Um, and so they created metrics to measure, you know, who's in fuel poverty. If you spend more than 10 percent of your income, you're in fuel poverty. And that metric has evolved over time to make sure they're including the right people, not overcounting, uh, but also tracking whether they're reducing fuel poverty. Um, here, we kind of just continue to focus on, you know, appropriating funds to this problem, but not really tracking whether we're reducing it. There's no real annual mechanism for us to say, you know, who's in energy poverty, who's in fuel poverty, um, you know, how many people are we taking out of energy poverty? Um, and so, like I say, following the track of the two countries has uh, just been, you know, really fascinating to kind of look at how every, you start at the same point from from the same crisis, but the way you address it is totally different. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, just that point that you make about having data to characterize the problem as being a necessary first step to further action. Um, that seems like a, like a pretty substantial gap. So in the same paper, uh, you conclude by making some recommendations for how your analysis uh, can inform U.S. Uh, policy. And we've probably touched on uh, some of this already, but can you summarize uh, those recommendations that you make in the paper uh, and how you think they might uh, look going forward? Yeah, I was uh, I was very honored. I was able to um, provide testimony to Congress, um, to the Energy and Commerce uh, Committee, Subcommittee on Energy, um, focused on this idea of generating equity um, as we focus on clean energy. And so, you know, kind of having written this paper, being able to say, like, what would it look like if the U.S. government had a national energy poverty and justice strategy uh, if we're you know, fortunate enough to have another stimulus in 2021 that focuses on, you know, reducing carbon emissions and greening our, our energy system. Um, and so kind of, you know, what I was saying is the first thing is to, you know, recognize energy poverty as a distinct issue within, you know, either our kind of energy planning or within the realm of general poverty, create a, a measurement or metric for what that is. Um, again, we have no codified definition of energy poverty, right? You know, there are various people that think about it different ways. Some people use energy burden. Some people use kind of a multifaceted approach of whether you've had a shutoff, a disconnection notice, keeping your home at an unhealthy temperature, whether too hot or too cold. And so really mm-hmm. trying to figure out what is our real definition, um, set a reduction goal. Um, and then there's an opportunity to 
kind of reimagine our low income energy assistance programs um, at the federal level, um, some at the state level for a more holistic policy that, you know, may provide bill assistance in the in the immediate term, but in the long term, actually make the house more efficient or put the house on renewable energy um, and then reassess and reevaluate that because. If we focus on it, then it should be changing, either going down or going up based on whatever might be happening. But, um, you know, keep up with the times to make sure we're implementing the best, most efficient and effective program. That's great. And I wonder, Tony, if you might be able to put a little bit more meat on those bones when you talk about a more holistic approach uh, to addressing this issue. You, You described the you know, low-income uh, home energy assistance program earlier as a bit of a Band-Aid. And so mm-hmm. what is what does that more holistic kind of package of assistance look like uh, to you? Yeah, so when I've been, you know, kind of thinking about this, um, so I, I'm a civil engineer by training, um, and so I've worked in public works departments, um, and you think about your transportation, your road system, your, you know, water and sewer system, um, and cities have capital improvement plans, right? So you... Mm-hmm. You know, you know, the age of all your infrastructure, you create a five year plan that's updated each year for the next five years. You know what streets you're going to replace, what pipes you're going to replace. And I think we should start to consider housing as infrastructure. Um, And so something I've been thinking about a lot now and um, uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters and um, Senator Kamala Harris have both introduced housing as infrastructure bills in Congress. Um, And really thinking about if we. Know that a community, all the houses were built in 19, say, 1920, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a lot of older housing here in Michigan. We know what the building codes were at that time. Um, If people are low income in the community, um, if the community has suffered from white flight, it's highly likely that the homes have not been improved um, to today's standards. And so can we take a targeted place-based, community-based approach to um, weatherizing homes. And so you go into a neighborhood, weatherize three, four blocks, and all of those homes are now weatherized. And so hopefully the people living in those houses are using less energy and are able to afford their energy. Um, There's also programs that are looking at aging in place. You know, how do you make homes more efficient, uh, focus on health and safety so um, elderly households don't have to move out. And so I think those type of approaches where you have a long-term strategy that can be combined with, you know, a city doing some other infrastructure improvement in an area. And so now you're starting to, you know, kind of revitalize communities and they're, you know, set for 20, 30 years. That's really interesting. Yeah. So that focus on energy efficiency makes a lot of sense. And it reminds me of a great paper that you published, gosh, what, maybe two years ago or so, mm-hmm. um, that was focused on access to uh, energy efficient technologies, in particular uh, um, LED light bulbs. Can you talk a little bit about that work? Yeah, um, I think you know that study. Um, although the findings are very, um, you know, depressing, was one of um, one of my favorite studies because. It came out of an idea listening to NPR, um, hearing that CVS was charging different prices for the same prescription drugs uh, uh, in across different zip codes. So charging more in poorer zip codes than in uh, higher income zip codes. And I was thinking about, you know, access to electric vehicles and, you know, participation in energy efficiency programs. Uh, and I wanted to look at, you know, 
uh, uh, entry level energy efficient technology like LED bulbs. Everybody's saying let's transition from incandescence to LED bulbs. Like, is access and affordability of those bulbs equitable across communities? Um, mm-hmm. And so we did a survey of about 130 stores in the Detroit metro. Um, going in, doing an inventory of what bulbs were available, how much they cost. Um, and we divided the um, area up into kind of four groups. So zip codes that were greater than 40% poverty on one end and zip codes uh, 10% or less poverty on the other end. Um, and what we found was, you know, LED access and affordability was not equitable across even just one metro. Um, and so you know, an LED bulb was about $8 in the poorest neighborhoods compared to about $5 um, in the higher income neighborhoods. And and there was a huge gap between the transition. So incandescent bulbs actually went down in price as neighborhoods got poor, um, as LED bulbs went up. And so you had this kind of two to one um, increase to switch from an incandescent to an LED bulb in poor neighborhoods than in higher income neighborhoods. And um, again, just thinking about an entry level technology like LED bulbs either not being available in stores in people's local communities or being twice the price um, as an incandescent bulb. And so I think it highlights you know, why policy is so important because there's policies for utility companies to reduce the cost. But many utility companies partner with um, kind of the typical players like Lowe's and Home Depot and not many of the smaller stores that are located um, in poor communities that don't have big box stores. Right. Yeah. And that's I, I wanted to follow up on that to, to see if you had a you know clear hypothesis for why the bulbs would be more expensive in low income areas. Is it that you have those sort of smaller stores that don't have the same uh, you know, benefits of, uh, of scale that the big boss cores do, or might there be other factors? Yeah, it was kind of those two, you know, two things playing together. So yeah, smaller stores, you know, that, that aren't buying in bulk to, you know, kind of have that reduction in price, but also that partnership with the utility company who offers the instant rebates. Um, and so what we noticed in Lowe's and Home Depot, Best Buy, um, you could get an instant rebate on the bulb in those stores, but that wasn't advertised um, in the smaller stores in the poor communities, um, just because the utility companies didn't really, you know, think about um, people either not being able to travel to the suburbs to big box stores, or that you know that would be the place where people um, purchase light bulbs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. That's so interesting. There's so many interesting angles of your work, Tony, and um, I hope that we'll be able to explore them more in the future. Um, and, uh, but with that, I think we're going to close out our conversations and, um, move on to our last question, which we call top of the stack. So asking you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard that's related to the environment or energy or really anything that you find interesting that you would recommend to our listeners. And I'll just start with a brief recommendation from the New Yorker magazine, um, a recent piece from Elizabeth Colbert, who's just a fantastic science writer, Um, She has a piece called Three Scenarios for the Future of Climate Change. Um, And for me, as someone who's used to reading pretty dry uh, academic reports on the topic of climate, it's always great to see the issue treated uh, by a great writer um, like Colbert and uh, just recommend people check it out. It's a really interesting, really well-written piece. Uh, But how about you, Tony? What's on the top of your uh, literal or metaphorical reading stack? Yeah, I think, um, and it's, 
I mean, it does have a connection to energy because um, it's really about uh, housing consumption. And um, so it's a book called The Warmth of Other Suns by yeah. uh, Isabel Wilkerson. Really fascinated um, with the Great Migration and how that has impacted particularly some of the Rust Belt cities, Great Lakes cities. Um, and so reading about people moving from the South during that period, and I've been you know, tracing my ancestry, um, and just, you know, moving into housing um, that was abandoned during white flight and those type of things, I think um, really ties into this idea of, you know, what housing are people consuming and what happens when jobs shift and kind of transition um, and so I think it makes a, it provides a good historical context to, um, you know, where people live and how people live, uh, which can impact, you know, all types of things related to environmental justice, energy justice, um, climate change. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my, my aunt actually just recommended to me that I read that book. And so, uh, so between her and your recommendations, that's a no brainer for me. So all right. I'll go right on the top of my stack. <laughs> there are no, there are no coincidences, Daniel. <laughs> You've been scheming with my aunt to recommend books to me. Exactly. I, I knew it. Dastardly Tony Reed. That's funny. Well, between that and the barbecue, I think, uh, we might have a hard time getting along, but, but yeah, you know, we we'll do might, our best. <laughs> All right, great. Well, Tony Reams, again, from the University of Michigan, thank you so much for coming on today onto Resources Radio and helping us understand your work about energy justice and energy poverty. We really appreciate it. All right. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode. <laughs>